Hello and a big welcome back to Expected Goals, the Brighton of Albion podcast. I'm joined once again by Charlie Benny. Charlie, how are you doing? I'm good, Liam. I'm well. Um, still, you know, bored out of my skull without the football, but uh, it's nice to be nice to be back to have a chat about uh, what's not going on and, uh, you know, reminisce about the good old days. Yes, most definitely. Um, so this is part two of our sort of recruitment special, if you like. Uh, mine and Charlie sort of attempt to, to fill the void of football at the moment by having a look back at some of the good, some of the not so good um, and everything in between in terms of recruitment from a Brighton standpoint. Um, last episode, we were very kindly joined by Kieran Maguire. Um, absolutely fantastic to speak to him. We've got another special guest um, on at the end of this episode as well. So do stick around for that. Um, like London buses, you know, you, you wait for one guest and then, then two come along in, in two episodes. Um, but before we, we get to that, we thought, uh, we, we throw it back a little bit, something we haven't done for, for a little while now. Uh, a game of nil or no nil. Um, someone who, by the way, today, I'm not sure if you, if you watched it, Charlie, but um, he dispatched, uh, I think it was Philip Bing, Billing uh, of Bournemouth in the uh, in the E Premier League Invitational uh, FIFA tournament, having um, absolutely battered John McGinn um, in, in the first game. I think he beat him like 6-1. Um, and he beat Billing, I think it was 4-2 today, with Glenn Murray getting all four goals and then calling him the GOAT. So, um, you, you know, what, what you, uh, did you make anything of, of Mapai's FIFA skills? Um, I know he's pretty good at FIFA. He's definitely uh, an avid FUT uh, team player. I saw, um, I did watch the McGinn one. Unfortunately, I was at work for the uh, for the Philip Billing game, so I couldn't watch that. Um, Philip Billing, I believe, was one of the favourites for the tournament. So I think Neil stands in good stead. To, uh, to maybe go far. I did enjoy watching Raheem Sterling um, beat mm. Wilfred Zaha. I think that was yesterday as well. Um, I think he is pretty good at FIFA. I saw there was another tournament that was um, being played in the same way, 85 mods, um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, FIFA, FIFA games. And he was up against, uh, it was a mix. So we, he was obviously representing the Albion, but he, he I, I want to say Standard Liège maybe. Uh, was the team that came up against? And unfortunately, it was a Dutch team, I think. Yes, uh, was it Rotter- Was it Sparta Rotterdam? Yes, that's, that's what is coming to mind. Standard Liège. I don't know where that's come from, but uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was Sparta Rotterdam, and they have a professional esports player. And mm-hmm. I think they lost maybe two nil. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, bad, but, um, it wasn't a big his, match. Um, his French temper was definitely on show during that uh, <laughs> game because um, the way the way if if anyone knows, I mean, I don't have FIFA twenty this year, but if anybody does play it, um, by all accounts, it's very, very boring. It's entirely centred on uh, drop back, Hutton esque, let's say, tactics, and then and then countering with pace. Um, so you are entirely disadvantaged if you try to keep the ball, try to create chances. That is not the way to go. So most of the pros are, you know, resigning themselves to just sitting back on one depth and then. Uh, and then scoring on the counter, and that's how uh, that's how Neil lost. He wasn't he wasn't best pleased, unfortunately. Uh, but hopefully, he's got a better chance in this tournament. Definitely, I think what's definitely good about my pies, of course, is someone who's got such good emotional discipline. Um, he'll be able to keep sort of any upset that he's got definitely under wraps, um, as he's sort of shown this season, um, as he definitely didn't try and fight Esri Conser um, or Brandon Williams either. Um, no, I don't remember which is mental the, the amount of bookings that he's you know not got for someone who's got actually got quite a strong reputation um but uh, i think it's what we were sort of discussing a bit earlier charlie that there is actually value to sort of these players that can show aggression or get in players heads or, or commit fouls um without making it particularly look bad or perhaps picking up cards do you think that's almost a really good trait of players to have 
Yeah, I guess, of course, it um, it depends on the circumstances of the the booking or the altercation, the benefit of, of, of engaging with an opposition player in that way. Um, if you can rattle them, you know, you, sometimes you don't know what effect it will have until you've done it. So, you know, sometimes it's worth playing on the edge. I, I, I do have reservations about getting books for, you know, pointless kind of argy-bargy that, you know, I think you'd far rather use that booking up on a tactical foul Dropping uh, a counter attack, obviously that's something he might be able to uh, might be able to do, uh, considering his position on the pitch. Um, but broadly speaking, yeah, you're right. He hasn't actually book, been booked too many times this season, c- considering how uh, how fiery he is as a player. Um, I think he got a lot more bookings for uh, for Brentford in his in his last season than he has for us. So uh, I think he spoke about it in an interview that he you know he's relatively happy with the way that he's kind of managed his his temper or his his aggression and he's kind of getting more benefit out of it now than he has done previously definitely i think as well with graham potter's degree in psychology and stuff that must must offer him um sort of a a realm of knowledge if you like in terms of knowing how to deal with players psychologically i think with someone like perhaps um with with mapaya's sort of temperament um that he might feel more comfortable in an environment with someone who sort of does have that knowledge might be able to help him and guide him, use whatever sort of techniques to, to perhaps deal with him psychologically and sort of help him on the pitch. Um, so without further ado, shall we jump into Neil or No Neil, Charlie? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so five questions as normal. Um, the first couple of them um, aren't anything sort of too specific, but we've gone for a bit of a, a bit of sort of a, a timely theme in terms of lockdown and whatnot for, for a few of them. Um, but to kick it off with question number one, he is the highest scoring bracelet striker this season. So do you need me to clear up what that would mean as a term, a bracelet striker? Yeah, I think I get it. But okay, just, fantastic. And just to be absolutely crystal clear, because I will be fuming if I have misunderstood the term. So, of course, a brace in football is two goals being scored, a hat-trick, three goals. Um, so the claim here is that Neil Mapai uh, is the highest scoring striker of players who have scored a maximum of one goal in each game that they've scored in. Hmm. That is a good question. So I don't think he's scored a brace for us this year. He hasn't, no. No, I don't think, yeah. So, he is definitely a brace to the striker. Is, it's the case of, is he the highest scoring one? Hmm. Okay, so I'm just thinking of the, of the top, of the kind of high scorers. Or he's sort of a, yeah, a medium scorer. He's not done too badly, I would say. So, I'm going to say, just thinking of other alternatives who probably haven't scored a brace. Um, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to back him. I think he probably, I think he probably is. So, I was a bit nice with this one. Um, you could have got it right either way. So, he's joint top scorer. So, I'll, I'll, I'll give you it. Um, there is one other player who's also got eight goals who is yet to score a brace. Would you like any guesses for an additional point as to who that might be? It's not Jordan, are you, is it? I'm afraid it is. Um, someone who obviously scored in, in a fixture recently against us, yeah. um, but has actually really hit the ground running for, for Palace this season. Um, and yeah, I believe um, every goal that he's scored has been what they'd call a marginal goal as well, which obviously means that it's been scored either um, as an equalising goal uh, an opening goal, sort of a winning goal. So if you'd take away all of his goals, Palace would 
uh, or every goal that he's got, sorry, um, has actually led to sort of points um, for Palace, which is a fantastic statistic to have. One, obviously, we would not like them to have, um, but that's certainly very impressive. So, Charlie off to a fly there. I'll give you a bonus point for that. Um, I'm disappointed I got it right, though. I knew. Yes, yeah, it's a shame. Um, Question number two. Nilmore Pai has the lowest key pass to assist ratio of any Brighton player this season. Hmm. For any listeners who are wondering, by the way, what key pass might mean as a definition, it's a pass that directly leads to a shot. Uh, also sometimes called a chance created or a shot assist. Um, and yeah, a key pass to assist ratio is purely a case of um, if you were to divide their number of key passes by assists, the average number of key passes they need before they actually assist a goal. So, yeah, so he's he's claim here is that he's made a lot of chances or he's, you know, progressible in, in positive ways but hasn't received too many assists. No, so the other way around would oh, be sorry, no, he's the got the sort of key passes. Oh. Yes, yeah, so. Um, hmm. Let me see. So Trossard, for example, has got very high chance creation volume. Pascal Gross also... So maybe their volume higher. So, Potentially. Yeah, so... Hmm. I'm going to say... Yeah, I... I, I, I hmm. Then Trossard sort of comes on and... Has, or has come on and, and been... And sort of been very... He's got a high, you know, assist kind of... Output as well, considering the minutes played. Um... I want to, yeah, I'm going to say no, Neil. Okay. Am I right or wrong? You're right with no, Neil. Who do you think then is top? I want to say Trossard because that was the logic that I used to work it out. Is it, is it him or is it? Maybe? I'm afraid it's not Leandro Trossard. So Neil Mapai has recorded one assist for every 9.5 chances created this season. Leandro Trossard has recorded one assist for every 10.3 chances created this season. Okay. Uh, the, the top dog in this occasion is actually Lewis Dunk. Assisted three ah, goals this season. He's only it. created nine chances, which that's obviously it. isn't a particularly poor amount for any centre back to have created. Um, Webster's created ten, um, but you know a one to three ratio is absolutely immense. So if you were to sort of take that to the extent that Pascal Gross creates chances, who's created fifty four this season, you know you'd sort of be looking at probably about eighteen assists, um, which is absolutely mental in terms of um, a proportionate output. Um, the tiny thing on, on Dunk this season, Charlie, just, just how impressive you've been with him this season. Yeah, he's he's been really, really good, as always. You know, it's no surprise to me anymore. I just know that he's just an exceptional footballer. Um, his involvement has been extremely high uh, in terms of just our, our attacking and defensive output. He seems, you know, at the centre of everything and that, you know, makes sense positionally in terms of formation playing in a central uh defensive role sometimes in a in a three at the back or obviously on the on the left of a two some of the time he's you know there's a big onus on him to create chances from the back under Potter's system uh, he's capable you know of doing every role on the pitch I think he's such a talent I would say that as a sort of follow-on to your to your question so the, I'm thinking specifically of the Connolly second goal against Spurs mm. And I recall, I think it might have been uh, a stat that you brought up previously that that the XG for that goal was extremely low, or maybe something you put on Twitter. The XG for that goal 
for that shot, I guess, that he took. Yes, it was our lowest goal this season in terms of XG, yes. Our yeah. most unlikely goal. If you so think. in light of that, that chance that Dunk created, and bear in mind that Dunk obviously passed in the ball and the ball was carried by Connolly for, for a period uh, of time. Does that, I mean, does that warrant, is that a chance created, that uh, that pass over the top that Connolly sort of into the left-hand channel? Is that a chance created or is that a chance that Connolly has created himself? So I believe that would go down as a chance created. Um, obviously, dependent on the provider that's giving out the data, could quite easily change. They have their own sort of um, criteria. However, I believe, so with the new stats bomb data put out, people do go and check it out. It's absolutely fantastic. If you go onto footballreference.com, fbref.com, uh, all free of charge as well, um, it, it's absolutely immense. I believe they consider uh, up to two actions um, before. So if they play a pass and it's in a dribble, um, I believe, yeah, it providing that um, they pass it to the player who who then um, takes a shot or scores. Uh, a bit like, obviously, those, those famous video clips of uh, Sergio Busquets where he's, he's giving Messi the ball to then sort of, you know, a five-yard pass, then run through an entire team. Um, and something as well that perhaps might pick up sort of Dunk's talents. Um, there's sort of a new metric coming out now, um, less so within sort of um, the, the general football world, but a lot more within sort of data analytics. Um, over from Germany, of course, with, with their sort of immense talent in this area. A metric called packing, which is basically looking at the number of players you can bypass um, with a pass, um, which is where Dunk is absolutely exceptional. Um, against Watford um, in the opening day when he set up Nilma Pai's um, debut goal, he stepped in between the, the sort of the, the two strikers, um, and which is bypassing two straight off the bat, uh, and then sort of whipped that pass around the remaining eight. Um, and against Spurs, he actually clipped it over all ten. Um, so although, as you highlighted, Charlie, that um, the chance created itself. Uh, isn't you know a high xG scenario? He's actually you know able to take out a lot of players um, with one pass, which you know for any centre back is is an immense chance to have to be able to be so pinpoint that you can find a teammate. Um, and you know although it's requiring a, a bit of work from from strikers, I'm sure Neil Pye and Aaron Connolly would, would score an awful lot of goals if sort of they were um, hit with those passes all the time. So I think they'd have no complaints whatsoever. Um, so definitely agree with you about Dunk's quality um, on that. And this follows on now quite nice into question three, as you were sort of speaking about um, dribbles before shots and things like that. So, of course, as everyone should hopefully be following the government guidelines and staying in isolation, um, looking at it from an isolation perspective then, Nilma Pai has had the most shots taken following dribbles this season, so doing things on his own. Yeah, I, I can just, I mean, I, this isn't based anything on anything other than I can see him in my mind picking up the ball, you know, dribb dribbling forward and just lashing the ball from, you know, 25, 20 yards. I think this is, I think this is, I think this is a Neil. You are spot on. How many do you think he's had this season of, of shots following the dribble? About 6,000, definitely. <laughs> um, you should have no, stopped I, after I, the first number. Oh, really? Okay. It's six. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. That's um, not surprising. It's something that he, he, He's very confident um, in in taking the ball on. I I, um, I rate that as well. I think it's um, I think it's an admirable um, kind of attribute to have. I, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that he's um, you know a confident individual in front of goal, and you know that's not mm. something to be taken for granted. I, I I like that in a player. I think some people have shown some degree of frustration in him shooting early. Of course, that frustration is is always subsequent to him not scoring but obviously every time he has scored you know he's um people have been delighted with his um 
willingness to shoot early. And I think it's something actually yeah. that is kind of present in the fan base. A lot of people have said that they want us to shoot more often from distance or or actually more accurately than <laughs> quite. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's a strange pain though because I'd, I'd like us to score with every shot we take. Um based on that so it, it's a strange claim um but as you say it can be fruitful because of course um i remember him sort of catching rui patricio um seemingly a bit unaware when he scored against wolves um and as you say unfortunately goals are going to of course be measured on one if they go in or two at least go on target um so i think there's definitely merit to a, a player shooting frequently as you say providing they can actually hit the target um as a little following from that question charlie who do you think was in second place and who do you think was in third for shots following the dribble Trossard and is that wrong straight up? No, Trossard's in joint third. Joint third. Okay, so is there someone second ahead of? There's someone second with five. Trossard's joint third with three. Okay, so hmm, interesting. Trossard, yeah, Trossard. I thought might be one. Just amounts of shot I mean I don't think our shot volume has been particularly high uh, well other than Neil I don't think anyone's got particularly high shot volume um, I want to say I do think Yahambash likes to shoot but not for not necessarily just from dribbling so I'm going to rule him out because he you know he's taken I mean both the goals he scored this season were first time efforts so I'll, I'll rule him out I think I'm going to have to go with, I don't want to do this, but Davy Proper? Proper, I thought might be in there. I'm unfortunately going to have to tell you that he's not. He's not in the top three. Yeah, you'll have to you'll have to put me out of my misery. I would. I, I think we'd be actually quite impressed by this. This would be one you definitely like. Stephen Alzate comes in second with five. You know um, what? I know everyone will say this is just not true, but I was really... <laughs> because I, I have you know just anecdotally but I don't like to go off anecdotal stuff because I'm like oh you're just tricking your, your brain remembers mm. one thing slightly more than another thing and you it's tricking you into thinking that it happens lots but I do I can picture him literally just you know dribbling a lot and then shooting I think he did a couple of times at home against um against Sheffield United this season I, I remember him um, I think we might have been Sheffield United might have been someone else but I just remember there's been times this season where he sort of just carried the ball into the box and um, just sort of kept going with it and then pulled the trigger and unfortunately not scored. Um, but yeah, definitely another player who's sort of, you know, we, we've waxed lyrical every single episode about him. Um, but this is the sort of metric where um, previously when obviously these metrics weren't accessible to, to the public, certain players won't stand out as much. And, you know, a, a player who I think can um, can shoot following a dribble uh, is as valuable as a player who can create a shot using a cross or a set piece because um, shots shot to your method of scoring goals in football. So I definitely think that there's merit in that sense. Um, and as well, as you say, Charlie, it's definitely reflective of sort of Alzate's play style. Um, so so a good answer on that in the end, actually, from you. Um, question four, then. Of course, everyone should, of course, alongside isolating, be social distancing where possible. Um, so looking at the reverse of social distancing, if we were looking at players on a, on a football pitch that don't social distance, um, Nilma Pai has the most presses per 90 of any Brighton player this season. Oof. Does run and run and run. But other people also run a lot. Gross likes to press. 
hasn't played as, as much minutes, so maybe he presses more when the per ninety might work. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with no Neil, and I might suggest that it might be Gross. Who... Again, you're right with no Neil, but Gross yeah. isn't isn't the leader. Isn't the top presser? Is it no, it is a midfielder. Yeah, proper. No, you're going to get it eventually. I'll give you one more go, but this is someone who's perhaps um, been criticised for, if anything, pressing too much and maybe needing to press um, a little bit less. However, his his press success rate is 28.5%, whereas Mapai's uh, is just under 27 So there's a marginal difference. Mapai, by the way, uh, averages 23.3 presses a game, um, with just under half at 12 coming in the final third. So, so I'll, I'll give you one more guess. Yes, Yves Basuma leads the way. 25.1. Um, so just, just under sort of two more presses per game. Um, someone who's definitely come on in leaps and bounds this season. Um, I, I'm sure you'll vouch him, Charlie, in that sense defensively. Um, someone who sort of uh, under Hewton was renowned for his ability to sort of be a big transition player for us in terms of sort of carrying the ball on those counter-attacks. I remember him looking immense at Arsenal um, back in sort of May last year and there's a yeah, picking that ball up and sort of striding forward with it, um, cutting inside, drawing fouls. Uh, looked like a really immense talent. So perhaps to see him come with something a bit different in this locker um, could be really beneficial for him. I know he's not quite had the sort of final third output people were expecting from him. I know there's sort of clips of him in um, in France um, when he used to play there of, of scoring goals from range and stuff. And I remember him actually, I think, uh, at Birmingham in, in a pre-season friendly, hitting a free kick from from range. So And of yeah. course, Bournemouth in, in the cup. Um, so what do you sort of make as Basuma as sort of a, a slight tangent um, in terms of where he might fit for, for Potter? I mean, I I really do like him. I think he, I can understand why he hasn't he hasn't featured as much as some people might have expected. Um, I think when he sat in a, I think he came in for Palace away, um, for Stevens who was suspended mm. and was really really good. Um, his ball winning was just, you know, really 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 good. You know, some people have, have um, raised questions, let's say, uh, about his defensive ability, but he, you know. He showed in that game that he can be he can be disciplined. Um, obviously, you highlighted his um, pressing success might not be um, as high, might be overly keen, but not might not get it right every time. I think there's you know there's room to improve there. I think you know pressing players are really important and in high demand in in football right now. I think ultimately, generally speaking, you have to make concessions when you think about the players that you have. You know they might be good at some things and not so good at others, or not quite as good at some things as they as they could be because you have to remember that ultimately if 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 he was if he had an extremely high uh, success rate for pressing and had all these other attributes he wouldn't play for us so no sadly not take in terms of you know what you get from players and some inconsistency and and so forth um, but I do really like him I I, I don't want to mi- I don't want to lose his pressing ability I I, I like the way that he. Um, you know he he takes the initiative in in that sense. Obviously, has to be a a kind of uh, unanimous sort of system. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, one player wildly pressing and and the others dropping back, then it's you know a waste of energy and it, and it ruins the shape. Um, so there has to be sort of some continuity in that sense. Um, but I I like him. I like his attributes. Um, and I, and I think that he will eventually become a key member of the team. I think whether he sort of sits in a deeper role or a more advanced role we're still you know we're still going to find that out but I think probably his best performances this year have come when he's actually been sitting deeper which is a bit of a surprise 
I think one of the perhaps dangers as well of perhaps being over reliant on some of these statistics are um, the success rate that the FERF use uh, in terms of calculating uh, whether a press is successful or not, I believe, is actually regaining the ball inside five seconds. Now, it's important to note, and Charlie, I believe you've actually done an excellent sort of article on this looking at uh, Palace away a couple of seasons ago. Pressing isn't always a case of directly trying to win the ball in that current location of the pitch. Uh, a lot of teams might press just to spoil or slow down an attack to uh, prevent forward play, perhaps um, try and screen sort of players backwards to force them to, to go backwards as football is ultimately uh, an invasion game. Likewise, that they might press in, in certain structures um, in order to sort of set traps. Um, I think you did a really good article, Charlie, that, that will link sort of off the podcast. Um, the people should definitely go and read as how Hewton sort of used Knockout and others effectively um, in terms of um, sort of limiting Zahara as a threat. And teams will definitely set up to try and force teams to play certain ways away from sort of key players um, or simply pressing to perhaps force force players to go long. Um, a lot of times you'll see sort of passes go back towards goalkeepers and there's, there's a real sort of urgency of, oh, let's go and press this ball now, uh, put the keeper under pressure and sort of force him just to smash it down the pitch. Um, so I wouldn't be too overriding on um, the statistic of winning the ball back, um, as spoiling can be sort of in terms of attacks, just as important as it can sort of winning the ball back. Um, and I think as well, sort of deserves immense credit is you know to have the ability to you know do 25 presses per game. It's it's a high intensity uh, activity as well as players will be covering sort of six seven miles a game um, anyway. And to do a lot of that at high speed in order to press, um, it's something that's definitely valuable. And as you've seen the season, with certain players getting injuries. Uh, in a high-pressing system, players are more susceptible to that sort of thing, um, which is, again, as potentially dangerous as it can be a successful system. Um, but I, I agree with you, Charlie. It's interesting to see that Basuma's perhaps operated better in a deeper-lying role in terms of perhaps being a, a sort of system player. But then maybe that versatility, as we spoke about with sort of Alzate and other players before, it is really beneficial if he can then go perhaps further forward uh, and sort of be a pressing outlet as well. Uh, it's definitely not a part of the game that's going to be bad for a player to have. It just might be a case of he's not really required to use it as much. Um, so again, yeah, I think Basuma is deserving of some plaudits this season. Uh, and then finally, question number five. Of course, everyone should hopefully be staying at home, apart from, of course, any essential trips uh, or for key workers. Uh, again, thank, thank you very much for your service. Uh, Neil Mapai has the best minutes per goal uh, ratio of any Brighton player at home this season, with the exception of Adereza Yambash, because Adereza Yambash has got uh, yeah. two goals in 177 minutes which averages out to 88.5 minutes per goal. So we're going to exclude your handbash. I see. I think there's only one um, other competitor in this instance, and I think it's Trossard. It's obviously okay. French and scored against Norwich. Uh, so came off the bench against um, Everton and got the assist. Obviously, that's not a, uh, not a relevant factor here. Um, the only thing with um, the only thing with with Morpé is that he has played a lot of minutes. Um, he has almost twelve hundred. Yeah, so that's kind of not working in his favour in this instance. I am going to say this is tough, and I think I can't I can't think of any other outside metrics that are disturbing sort of my my thought process here. Um, I'm going to. I'm going to say, hmm, he scored. No, I'm going to say no, Neil. I think I think it might be Trossard. Again, you're right with no, Neil. But again, I'm afraid it's not Trossard. No, so Trossard has got a, a marginally worse actually minutes per goal ratio 
than Mapai. So Mapai comes in at 299.75 minutes, so sneaks in under 300 uh, with four four goals at home. So perfectly balanced home and away. Four goals at home, four away uh, with 1,199 minutes played. Chossad has three with 927 minutes at home. Um, but the golden boy himself, Aaron Connolly, has only had 440 oh, minutes cool. at home this season yeah. and having scored twice, um, ironically, I believe, probably the only Brighton player to have a brace this season um, but with, with two goals. And just 440 minutes played means he averages 220 minutes per, per goal at home, which is, of course, a, a pretty good ratio. Although, of course, it's skewed massively by the fact he's not had an immense amount of minutes. Um, but, yeah, it's quite, very interesting to see that. Um, but, again, the, the fact that we've got you know a, a good amount of players that are scoring goals at home, um, you know, that there's, there's eight or nine there of, of our players, let alone the 80,000 own goals we appear to be having scored for us this season, um, which no one has any complaints about because... I think I speak for everyone when I say seeing ex-Palace Adrian Mariapa slicing the ball into his own net. I say slicing, actually. He absolutely smashed that in um, to his own net. Um, in front of the North Stand for, I believe, our 100th Premier League goal um, was absolutely delightful, delightful scenes. Um, and likewise, seeing Luca Dean poke it into his own net from, as you say, Leandro Trossard-Cross um, to, to win the game in injury time um, is never going to be a complaint to anyone. Um, not because we really don't care how goals go in. We just care that they go in. Um, and he didn't say Duffy, that... I, like, Sorry? About when Duffy came off... No, he didn't come off the bench, did he? He came. He scored right at the end of... Uh... Did he come on to shoot things uh, Or did he start against Norwich? I'm he not... might. In fact, I believe Webster got an injury and he came on for Webster. I don't know why I think that. But yeah, very I, funny I, feeling. I was thinking as well. But, um, but yeah, in, in either sense, um, so it's not... It's, it's no Neil, so... Uh... Got that one. I'm afraid. Right. So, however, very, very good from you all round once again in terms of identifying if it was Neil, Neil or not Neil. Um, and, and the harder part of then guessing the culprits, if you like, uh, if it wasn't Neil. Always the harder task. Um, but yeah. some, some well weighted guesses from you in there. Um, it's much easier, I think, being set on my side, knowing the answers. Um, but again, another excellent effort from you, Charlie. Um, we're going to hand you over now um, to hear the interview. Um, Delighted to have been joined um, by Aidan on the podcast. Um, so please do stick around for that. A fantastic segment to hear from someone who uh, has a real realm um, of knowledge and experience in, in sort of everything recruitment, data analyst related um, and whatnot. So someone who definitely is worth 40 minutes of your time to, to listen to. Um, but Charlie, but besides that, anything else to give to listeners before, before we hand them over? Um, maybe just on um, what we mentioned just prior about um, pressing and uh, I obviously, uh, I did. I did write an article um, a while ago about the uh, Palace away game in uh, the last se- season under Hughton, um, and and how we we managed to uh, sort of subdue their their threat, um, their singular or, or maybe just double threat, um, pretty well. Um, and, and as Liam points out, something that a term that I'm not particularly familiar with. I don't think I I kind of. Um, characterized it in those terms but I think spoiling is a good word for the way that um, we were operating in that sense it's not necessarily deliberately about winning the ball ball back although in some cases we were trying to set passing traps um, and and to sort of smother Zaha and and win the ball back quickly but in in any other case our pressing was entirely focused on spoiling their their chance creation which goes entirely through Luka Milivojevic so if you go and read the article and I and I, I would love it if you, if you did um, basically, our, our pressing from the front in, in Glen Murray, the, uh, the the absolute 
rapid pace machine himself uh, was centred entirely around Milivojevic. Very little pressure on the two centre-halves, um, Tompkins, and I believe is it Scott Dan, maybe? Was the Might other? have been Scott Dan. Um, not particularly good or effective ball players or uh, or chance creators, whereas Luka Milivojevic, obviously, um, very, very astute uh, midfielder on the ball, as it pains me to say, but, but a very good player. Um, so in that sense, you know, the pressing is not about following the ball. It's not about winning the ball back in that instance. It's about kind of stifling um, chance creation and, and opposition effectiveness. So um, in any case, go and go and read that uh, that piece if you if you're so inclined. And other than that, uh, I hope everybody keeps safe and well. Definitely. And just as a final point, I know you said Charlie that Scott Dan and James Tompkins aren't particularly good chance creators. But I think James Tompkins is probably one of our best chance creators last season. In, in the two games that we played against <laughs> Palace, um, had had a key role until two goals ended up being really crucial. So, you, you know, that's someone great. who we could... could that's, that's he, yeah, it was abs- absolutely yeah. fantastic. Um, <laughs> I remember Roy Hodgson coming out as well in a press conference after the game and defending him from, I believe, the swirling wind um, that caused, oh, caused yeah. the ball to move. And uh, Of course, I think it's, it's crucial that you know, with some of the slaughter that players get, that managers do protect them. Um, but I was, I was particularly, particularly laugh, uh, laughing at that situation where, um, you know, I thought Glenn Murray did impeccably well to keep himself composed despite the hurricane going on um, mere seconds before. Um, so, yeah, I thought uh, a very nice note to end on there to, to have, have a bit, bit of laughter. Um, yeah, please do um, stay and listen to the rest of the pod. Uh, hopefully you enjoy it. And me and Charlie will see you for the next episode. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Aidan onto the podcast. Um, Aidan, firstly, how are you? And would you be able to introduce yourself to any listeners who might not know exactly who you are? Yeah, so I'm doing well today. Uh, no complaints. Um, so my name's Aidan Ray, and I'm a performance analyst. I have experience working for Bristol Rovers, a um, little bit of professional lacrosse in the U.S., and I'm now working in the U.S. collegiate uh, soccer scene with Ohio University. And along with that, I've done a bit of consulting, um, be it for clubs or a little bit of uh, helping out on designing classwork for universities and performance analysis. So yeah, that's uh, that's me. Fantastic. I think you're very well qualified then, um, as we obviously have a sort of a recruitment-themed podcast. Um, definitely someone who's got a lot of experience, more so than myself, and can hopefully provide some great insight um, into the world of performance analysis and analytics. Um, so to kick it off then with the sort of a big question, um, from your experience, what role does analytics play um, and what likelihood will this actually go further than what it is currently? Uh, so right now, analytics has a few different approaches at the moment. So you really have the sports science aspect, which is going to be player fitness, heart rate, all of that fun stuff, the medical side. Um, you have player recruitment, obviously, and then you have performance analysis, which is more of the tactical and on-field type stuff. Um, along with that, right now, being an analyst is kind of at a crossroad. Um, you kind of have a split right now between clubs who are still very traditional in the role that analysts fill where you have the analysts sitting somewhere high up in the stadium filming the matches and creating reports. And then you also have more progressive clubs right now who are 
filling their coaching staff with analysts. You're seeing assistant managers especially become former analysts uh, who are now on the touchline doing more of the day-to-day coaching type stuff, but still having a strong data influence. In terms of what the future will bring for it, um, I think we're going to see more and more of coaching staffs being filled with analysts on the touchline with them. I don't know how many analysts will become uh, full managers or full head coaches, but at the moment, I think we're going to see more and more joining the touchline. So you perhaps expecting them to see more clubs, perhaps not to the extent, but Brentford, of course, are sort of being quite archetypal um, of this sort of new data-driven um, insight in clubs and, and their recruitment process, of course. We poached Neil Mapai from them, our, our club record signing, who's uh, had a very good start to Premier League life um, and is, you know, quite reflective in many ways, as are other players showing now with the likes of side Ben Rama there, Ollie Watkins, um, that this data-driven approach really can work. Do you think it's perhaps, from a fan's perspective, some people might not necessarily understand analytics or perhaps appreciate it, but if they can see that these signings that are being sort of um, discovered and sort of the quality of players it can bring, that might really help to get the fans on board? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think just in the past five years alone, we've seen a lot more fans truly diving into it, a lot more fans truly interested and appreciating the statistical side of the game. Um, and I think it will continue that way, just like you said, with more signings that seem to be under the radar, but in all reality are very good signings and very good impacts coming in onto the team. Um so yeah, I think that going into the future, we will see more and more smarter clubs, more and more clubs diving into the Brentford or the Michelin uh, transfer strategy. And with that being said, more people will try and copy it. And yeah, it'll be a higher impact in data. In terms of their sort of approaches of trying to find them, these, these sort of gems in the dirt, if you like, trying to find these um, players from lower leagues or perhaps some more obscure leagues that aren't of common knowledge to most people, um, just how difficult can it be to perhaps try and execute actually what they're trying to achieve? How, how tough can it be for clubs to find that sort of quality player, almost like we did with Pascal Gross to an extent in finding someone from um, sort of a second or, or third division league who might end up being a top player for you? It's a lot easier, I would say, than it used to be just because of how widespread um, data has become. Um, overall, though, you still have a number of clubs that are a bit more hesitant to deal with it or deal with the data side of the game. So you'll see them missing out a lot. But the hidden gems, so to say, or the diamonds in the rough, it's weird because a lot of the clubs are going to know about these players, but not a lot of the fans will know about these players. So it's tough to truly define uh, what the hidden gem is. But as long as you're bringing in people that are fitting your style of play or what your ambitions are, then you're more than likely going to see positive impact from them. However, if you're bringing in just a name, um, it's more likely to fail. So that's really interesting to, to hear, based off having spoken to Kieran Maguire, someone who's fantastic on Twitter as well. Um, we were speaking, saying that um, if recruitment as it has been in the past, can often be quite name-driven. Um, that can also be detrimental in terms of, from a financial perspective as well. Um, big-name players are sort of big status. 
um, can often sort of demand a bit of a higher fee. They've got a lot of reputation. But as you say again, um, if, if you're signing players based on reputation, that's perhaps got, um, I presume, danger them from an analytic perspective. They might not have outstanding numbers, but if they're saying, oh, a quality signing and you can list perhaps um, an ex- extensive range of perhaps titles they've won or accolades that might be really, really good, but might not necessarily be representative of perhaps the impact of that player. Um, I'm sure everyone can think of examples of players who have been part of successful sides, title-winning sides, cup-winning sides, but not being key players, but you could perhaps have quite a good portfolio in terms of a player without doing um, too much. So in regards to data, as much as we do like to focus on it on this podcast, we also try and focus as well that data isn't everything. And we do acknowledge as well that there's a lot more to football than just sort of the physical actions. Uh, from your experience, what doesn't data pick up that you think is really important or that managers that you've worked with have sort of looked for? Character. Um, there is no number that can define a player's personality or how a player will act on and off the pitch. Um, that's where you still have to have the eye test. That's where you still have to have contacts within the game to discuss how a player truly is because for most managers, analysts, whoever, one of the biggest things that they care about is house the player as a person. And there's a bit of advancement being done into trying to manage this a bit more in terms of using personality tests and uh, more cognitive type uh, management. However, that's typically kept within the team, so you know it about your own players, but it's very tough to know about potential recruitment. And that's where it's really tough with data. Um, you're more you're more likely to get on WhatsApp and send a message to a player or someone working at another club and ask, how is this person like, rather than, I guess really the only option would be to maybe go through their social media and hope that you get a bit of a sign of who they are from that and try and put data with that. But it's very unlikely that you'll have a true representation of a player. So yeah, when it comes to the biggest thing that data doesn't pick up, um, it would have to be character. Do you think then that there's perhaps a risk of uh, analytics and analysis potentially having an over-reliance on the data and maybe obscuring or failing to pick up on and just sort of omitting at times um, all the possible important characteristics that you talked about. And so if you look at some of the players that Brighton, as an example, we've signed in, in the past few years that have put up some extraordinary numbers um, in sort of other European leagues, but you might fail to account for perhaps the move culturally and um, things like language barriers, psychology, perhaps the speed of the game. Um, I know that at elite level, of course, all football's fast, but the Premier League, I believe, is is still leading the pack in terms of just how fast the game is in terms of um, like the number of seconds per action. So do you think as, as good as data is, we need to recognise more than ever now, as we're using it more, there's a time to use it and a time not to use it? Yeah, so I'm a big advocate of data being, you have to use data to support the eye test, and you use the eye test to support the data. Now, the eye test isn't just how a player looks on the field when you watch him. That's going to be so much more of the how's the player acting, how's he interacting with his teammates, the other team, the officials, everything that goes into how you would judge a person that you meet on the street or at a pub as, 
I guess, a new potential friend or something like that. Um, it's something that has to be complimentary. There will never be a time to correctly only use data. So from your perspective, then, it's most definitely sort of a 50-50 thing that you're going to need to sort of strike that balance? Yeah, it has to be 50-50. Um, I think they both have to help each other out in terms of using data and using uh, the eye test rather than one taking a precedent over the other. Fantastic. So based off of that, then, um, something that me and Charlie have sort of been discussing uh, is the thing around signing players when they've had a particularly good season or if they're in particularly good form. Likewise, if they're in particularly bad form. Um, when we signed Shane Duffy uh, back in the Championship now a few years ago, our record signing at the time for just two and a half mil, which sort of shows how far we've come as a club. Um, but he previously, um, in, in sort of the few games before we picked him up, uh, he'd been scoring own goals, um, was sent off as well. Um, and when we bought him, a, a massive recency bias from a lot of fans going, you know, why on earth have you made the signing? Um, he's been in awful form, but I overlooked him being one of the better centre-backs in the division. <laughs> Uh, a pretty mediocre Blackburn side and, of course, then made himself sort of a mainstay in the team. Um, and likewise, we picked up players who've been in exceptional form. Um, obviously, I don't tell you about Ali Reza Yihambash, but you know, of course, um, just how good he's been in the Eredivisie. Uh, won the Golden Ball as well, scoring a hat-trick in his uh, final game of the season over there. We then picked him up for an inflated fee. Um, can there be as much danger in signing a player in really good form as there is in someone signing a player who's perhaps had a really bad season? Yeah, and that's where it's really tough in terms of signing players, how you have to figure out, is this form or is this true ability? It's tough to figure out just by looking at numbers, for example, or really anything, it's going to be tough um, to figure out, say you have a player who's struggling lately, is he struggling just because he's unlucky right now and he's just in bad form, will he recover? Or is he struggling because something else might be going on and it's going to be the way he is for the rest of his career? Is his body failing him? Is he having personal life issues? Um, there's a number of factors that go into it. And every signing is a form of a gamble. It's just a matter of making the odds the most favorable for you. Um like I said, it's really tough to figure out form is going to be an issue or not. And you just have to look back enough to figure out a trajectory of the play rather than being recent enough where you only see a small bit of the big picture. I definitely agree with that. So do you think as well on top of that, that perhaps creates a bit of a misperception from fans when a player is bought? If you've put up exceptionally good numbers in one season, people are coming in and they're seeing you as this 25-goal-a-season striker. In reality, you might have been perhaps a mediocre 10-goal-a-season striker and have one outstanding season. Are people misperceiving um, the outlier when they should really be looking at the majority? I know this has sort of happened with Pascal Gross now. Um, of course, had an outstanding season in his first season, getting 15 goal involvements. Um, and in the last couple of seasons now, he's, he's had six in, um, in both seasons, which aren't bad returns, but people are going look, why is he sort of achieving half of what he did in the first season? Is that perhaps people perceiving things the wrong way? Yeah, so when you start performing at one level, you're naturally going to be expected to continue at that level. Um, it's a results-based business, and if you go into good form, if you really do well, that's your level now. That's what people expect of you. And in all reality, it may have just been almost a fluke in a way. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, 
it's it's tough for players mentally to deal with the expectations that they unfortunately put themselves under just by doing their job. And I think as fans, uh, we could really step back a little bit and be a bit more compromising. But that's obviously a very um, tough ask uh, for people. So I imagine in the future, it'll remain as is. If you have one good season, that's what you're going to be expected. There won't be much forgiveness when things return to normal. I agree. I think it's a very difficult paradox for players currently. Um, as soon as they sort of hit form um, or are out of form for a period of time, fans will be very quick to get on their back. Um, and there's a very, very good video now. I can't remember what it was, but it was with Carlos Carvajal, um, a former Sheffield Wednesday manager. Um, when they lost the game uh, and in the press conference afterwards, he was being asked by the media um, and they were saying, you know, we're in the window now. Is the value of these players, uh, are they not going to be as lucrative? Um, and he, he pulled out a £20 note and he scrunched up and he said, things can get damaged as much as you want, but the value of something remains the same. Saying that a player is still as valuable to a manager or to other teams, um, even though they might have a bad period of form. Um, if you've shown you can do something, there's no reason why you can't then go on to do it again. Um, and I think that's definitely where, as you say before, even in terms of data, with it importantly being humanistic at times and how managers work with players, um, that bond needs to remain. And we can't just sort of look at players who might have been out of form um, and, and sort of just, just cast them to one side because they're not doing well. I think Anthony Knockout was a great example of this. Uh, in the first Premier League season, um, he really didn't see himself, having been our poster boy, of course, in the promotion campaign, getting 25 goal involvements. Um, there was a lot of expectation. He didn't really come to fruition in the Premier League as we, as we expected he might do. Um, got sent off as well, I remember Everton. Um, and people saying, there's something not right. And, and it came out in the summer that he'd had big personal issues in terms of um, his father passing away. And obviously, he had other issues with his wife and his child. Um, and then in the in last season, he came back and I believe he got eight goal involvements, which is, I think, our second highest. Um, so, as, as you say, there can be things going on that we as fans will, will never know um, unless we're told. And it's perhaps really important that we consider those. Um, we don't just perhaps look at the, the raw image or, or the um, what's on the surface. We maybe need to scratch scratch a bit below it. Um, so based off of that, then, um, we, we as a club at, at Brighton sort of delved into um, sort of the European leagues. I think with the exception of Tarek Lamptey, um, I don't think we've made another sort of signing from within the Premier League. And even he is technically an academy signing. Um, and with us sort of d- dipping into um, the, the Belgian leagues, etc., and the, the Dutch leagues, from your experience in sort of data analytics, um, a lot of people have negative perceptions of these lower leagues, perhaps seeing them as weaker, not as good. Um, I know the, the phrase farmers league gets tossed around a lot. Um, is there sort of a weighting officially or unofficially in analytics? Is there sort of perceptions on saying, look, we know that this league is so much significantly lower than another one. Um, how does it balance out in terms of numbers? Yeah, so you have rankings from everybody uh, deciding how good a league is. I would say probably the most publicly accessible one would be through 538. They have a ranking of nearly every league in the world and it's just a leaderboard of sorts on what league is the toughest. And with signings, you do consider where they're coming from. Obviously, a player from... The Bundesliga is going to likely be better than a player coming from the Eredivisie, for example. Um, I do know there's a study done back in 2018. It kind of ranked the big five leagues in terms of like the highest goals per match. 
and Bundesliga came in front with 2.9 goals per match. And uh, France's Ligue 1 was the lowest of the big five with only 2.5 goals per match. And that's also something you have to consider, especially when looking at either strikers or defenders, um, how often are goals scored in the league. It's definitely something that clubs factor in, in terms of signing players, um, where they're coming from. But at the same time, every club is a bit different. Every club has a different priority on certain signings or certain players. So I wouldn't say there's a standard, but there's a clear idea, if that makes sense. Definitely. So do you think perhaps the issue then isn't the existence of this understanding within analytics, um, perhaps more so within fans and perhaps how we sort of distribute this information? So if we, um, as analysts or as people in, in academia, have an understanding of these studies and these numbers are known um, in, in terms of some leagues are more free scoring than others, some are harder to score in, um, does that, do you think data need to become more publicly available so fans can sort of consider when a player's coming in, okay, if this is one of the, the highest scoring leagues, um, and he's a player coming from a top team in one of the, the highest scoring leagues, um, the likelihood is that they're going to be in a really free scoring team. Um, and the perhaps difficulty in terms of defensive quality won't be what it was. Um, and therefore, perhaps he's put a bit less pressure on them. Do you think that perhaps fans um, perhaps miss out on some of this key information? I think so, but I also think it's getting better in terms of broadcasting. Um, we're seeing the lights of BBC and Sky Sports, including a lot more data into their broadcast compared to five to ten years ago. So I think it is getting better. I think people are starting to accept more and more that, for example, the Premier League is primarily a league made up of all of the other league's best players. So the... I guess, Farmers League mentality that there is, I think it's slowly starting to go away because people realize that's where the talent comes from, mostly at this point. I think you're spot on. And what's really interesting to consider that as well, um, of course, we recently had Liverpool Spurs at the Champions League final. Um, but for a long period of time now, despite the success of the Premier League, all the Premier League sides have pretty much, for the most part, been notoriously quite bad in Europe. Um Obviously, Chelsea, the, the only London side with um, with a Champions League. And despite the quality that, that we boast, for whatever reason, um, we seem to be, uh, as a league, pretty bad at representing ourselves, um, which perhaps should put a stop to some of that um, Farmers League discussion. Um, is It's definitely not justified. And I think a, a key point in showing that, um, which we, we have to discuss, is, is Pascal Gross. Um, someone signed from Ingolstadt um, back in the summer of 2017. Um, the first time we made actually is a Premier League side. Um, someone who I didn't have much of an idea about at the time. I know, I know you definitely did, Aidan, but I think any Brighton fan didn't have a clue who he was. Um, not through a sense of um, that we, we didn't want to know who he was or we didn't care for him. It was just a case of he'd just really gone under the radar from a fan's perspective. He's someone who'd um, performed outstandingly in the, in the second division in Germany. Um, and done very well in a relegated Ingolstadt side as well. Um, even at the time, how good a sign was Pascal Gross before he, he did what he did? Yeah, so before he joined Brighton, he was in the Bundesliga for two years with Ingolstadt. And I believe at the time he had 
94, 95 key passes, some ridiculous number like that in two seasons in the Bundesliga. And he was doing that at a side that was battling relegation. They survived in year one. They couldn't do year two. So to be able to accomplish that at a really bad side, it shows just how creative and just how talented he was and still is. And when Ingolstadt went down, I really expected a bigger Bundesliga side to come in and sign him. However, Brighton somehow managed to sign him. And that was truly a brilliant signing, in my opinion, to bring in a top creator from a very good league in the world for, I believe it was 2.8 mil of a transfer. It was low. It was incredibly low, um, which I think, again, uh, having spoken to Kieran and saying that, of course, that the prices that are paid for players often will skew perceptions. A player that suddenly um, bought for a, for a cheap fee will have a lot less pressure put on them than someone who comes in um, with sort of the demands of whatever the sort of fee brings them. So, do you think that's another example? Um, perhaps these these players who um, are what you'd call sort of statistical outliers that people don't see if they don't delve into the stats that um, gross is someone who not only was creating well, but it was more impressive when he was creating in a team that themselves weren't creating a lot. Another example being, albeit he's a lot older now, Glenn Murray having scored a lot of goals in a Brighton side for two Premier League seasons who weren't scoring a lot of goals um, and Lewis Dunk playing a lot of passes in a team that wasn't possession heavy, um, which is maybe, I think, again, where um, our fan base perhaps um, fall, fall down, fall into the trap more than anything. Um, of expecting a, a player who's got 20 or goals a season um, or been a real real big scorer um, to come into a side who won't uh, give them or facilitate them to have as many shots per game um, or as many chances or give them sort of uh, the, the extra opportunities that they would have had per game. Do, do you think that, that that is, again, sort of archetypal of that? Yes, I do. Um, I think that the lower the fee the less pressure you will have. It's simple. I mean, you're always questioned, are you living up to your price tag? So I think that the signing of Pascal Grosch, for example, he came in with very low pressure. Like you said, many Brighton fans truly didn't know much on him, so it's hard to expect anything when it's a relatively unknown player. Um, And it allows him to just go out and enjoy his play, do what he does without the pressure. And then you have, for example, let's go with Fernando Torres. Uh, his transfer back in whenever it was, early 2010s, how the fee was massive. And you have to wonder, was it the fee that got to his head and caused him to just not have the composure that we saw initially justify that fee? Do you think, again, as, as Brighton, we've then seen examples of that with the signings, Valerezi, Hanbash and Jürgen Lockadia, um, two players who haven't performed badly at all. Um, I, I didn't think Hanbash was terrible last year. Um, I was quite impressed with him from a, a defensive tactical perspective. I felt he fit into um, Hewton's 4-5-1 actually relatively well. Uh, the same with Lockadia, I thought he was pretty instrumental um, in a cup run that probably doesn't get the credit it deserves. Um, given just how bad our tail end of last season was. I think if we'd done really well, people would have sort of glamorised it a lot more. Um, but when then people then look at these raw numbers and compare, they go from being, or Yehambash was a 20-whatever goal a season striker, to then getting, he's now got two, but of course not scoring last season. Um, but then you can argue, OK, we've gone from a side who 
um, or Johan Bashari has gone from a side who were free scoring, who were pushing up at the top of the Eredivisie to a side who are now scrapping for their lives, who are being defensively minded. And if you actually contextualise that, his main job isn't to provide goals and assists. They're just sort of um, an additional bonus. So do you think people have maybe um, been harsh on, on Johan Bash and Lokadia as examples? I think so, yes. Um, it's tough because, like you said, you have to remember where they came from and how that side was performing versus how Brighton's performing. And along with that, you also have the league and culture difference to deal with. So there's a lot of factors that go into a player settling in. And I can definitely agree with a number of fans that they did underperform a little bit. I think we could have expected a bit more from Ali Reza, for example. But I think at the same time, it would have been very unrealistic to expect the same numbers that he put up at AZ, I believe is where he came from. I think it was Alkamar, yes, yeah. But is that then the trap the football falls into um, as, as a sport now in, in terms of its nature of... It always has been and always will be a game of goal scoring, um, which is the primary primary thing that fans will look for in terms of players. Um, and that, that's the first thing they'll look at when you're signing a, any sort of attacking-minded player. Um, but then from sort of a tactical perspective, uh, and you perhaps understand this more, the more you look into the analysis side of things, is that managers will very rarely sign a player just because they score a lot of goals. I, I think, with the exception of maybe a striker, the majority of players unless you're sort of a real out-and-out goal scorer, won't just be signed because you might have scored a lot of goals. There needs to be tactical requirements um, that, that a player's going to fit. And of course, what fancy to remember is that Johan Bash was someone we tried to get before he moved to Aizid Alkamar. He was someone that we scouted for three sort of plus years um, across his journey, his development. We tried to get him, I think, back in the championship. It might have been around 15-16 time um, when Chris Hutton first came in. And evidently, he was someone that we still wanted after a period of time. This wasn't someone that we went... Um, and suddenly saw he'd had an outstanding output in terms of numbers and gone, look, we need to get him before someone else does. This actually was a really, really well-weighted signing in terms of the recruitment, as you've said, um, that has just happened to go wrong. Do you think people are, are forgetting sort of um, the length of time Brighton put into this? Yes, and I think with that also, I think we're going to see a transition in fans being more understanding in the transfer market. Um, thanks to Roberto Firmino at Liverpool and how, for example, people are starting to understand it's not just about scoring goals. Firmino is now regarded as a top, top player, even though he technically plays a striker position and he's not the most prolific goal scorer. So I think people are starting to get more understanding it's a results uh, business. That's what football is. And I think people are going to look at the best team and see how they're doing it and then expect the very same from their own club. I think that's definitely happened with Normal Pie as well, to provide another example of that. Someone who's now being recognised um, for his pressing efforts in terms of also for someone who's quite small um, in terms of both stature and height and weight. Um, he's actually got quite a good link play in terms of his ability to play back to goal. Um, I know it's actually recorded quite good um, sort of expected goal chain figures, um, which for people who might not know is effectively uh, if you were to take all of the possessions on a pitch um, in, in a game of football that led to a shot, the cumulative XG um, of all those shots. So if he's involved in 
sort of five possessions um, that end up all being shots and they're all 0.1. They're all relatively low chance. He'd get 0.5 XG. Um, and that's a figure higher than sort of Glenn Murray got as well. Um, and and look, dear two players who um, one of their key parts of their game really is their physical presence and their ability to perhaps duel aerially, but also hold up, um, hold up the ball and perhaps be bounce players. Something that you can sort of link play off of. So uh, as you say, I think it's really important that people start to recognise that. Um, I definitely think that's starting to come in. And I think that will have to be sort of a top down approach in terms of the formation. Um, with strikers definitely um, being recognised for what they do off the ball. I think it was Johan Cruyff was, was sort of the, one of the first people to say um, or pioneer the idea of with this total football concept that strikers going to need to be your first defenders. And likewise, if we look at that defensively now, and Matty Ryan is a fantastic example of this, probably one of our most underrated bits of recruitment just because he's felt that he's been a, a seagull now naturally for, I mean, he, he's not even been a Brighton player for three years, but it, it doesn't feel at all like he's a, he's a newer signing um, someone who's fit the mould perfectly he's been a fantastic goalkeeper under Chris Hutton um, in terms of being a sort of a range shot stopper um, and he's fit the transition really really well in terms of now being a, effectively a, a ball playing goalkeeper um, got one of the highest rates in terms of playing out from the back um, of any team I think we're sixth in the league in terms of actual possession statistics um, and a lot of what that occurs it is sort of short goal kicks he's trying to build our way out and bypass the press sort of in our own half um, so do you think now it's being recognised more with goalkeepers in this analogy that, OK, your, your shot-stopping ability, as they say, with the likes of Edison now, might actually be secondary. It's how good are you at playing football? Yeah, um, I think they're starting to become that total mindset of a goalkeeper is now the first attacker. And we're starting to see more and more clubs across the full world going and wanting more of a ball-playing goalkeeper rather than just a goalkeeper who's going to stand on the line and stop the shots. At the end of the day, he still does have to stop the shots, and it's very important for him to prevent goals. It's his job. However, I think Matty Ryan's been a perfect example of a player going from that more traditional role and becoming a truly modern player and changing with the times. And Brighton are incredibly lucky to have a player who can make that adjustment. Not every player can make that adjustment. Um, And I think as we see the game go, we're going to see goalkeepers focusing more and more on distribution rather than just stopping the shots. I definitely agree with you. And as someone, uh, I know you do some goalkeeper-related analysis yourself, Aiden. Can you provide us uh, and the fans with perhaps some examples um, in terms of stats of just how good Ryan's been in terms of volume um, and the amount of which he's doing these things. Is, although, obviously, a, a lot of the fans will be watching Brighton play other teams regularly, we perhaps don't get to watch other goalkeepers a lot of the time and see the rate to which they're doing this. And perhaps then if Ryan is already playing the sample size that we're frequently watching, um, some fans might not understand just, just how good he's been. Do, do you have any idea that you could explain to people just how good he's been? Yeah, so... Essentially, with Ryan, he's been one of those goalkeepers, to put it as simply as possible. Brighton, just because of their position on the table, they, well, a number of reasons, but you can look at the position on the table to assume it right away. They are expected to give up a lot of chances. And to keep a clean sheet, it's not that important. It's not something that should truly be reflected on a goalkeeper that's where you have to look at the expected conceded goals to figure out 
okay, this is going into every match. We can't expect about this much to go in. And then we're looking at how Ryan, for example, is performing actually, like how many he truly concedes per match. So then we can make a ratio and figure out, okay, this is what he's expected, but this is what he's truly doing. He's over or underperforming by this much. And typically he's overperforming, meaning he's stopping more than he should. And then we can transition into the distribution side of things. And we look and see he's one of the most accurate distributors in the Premier League. So to be able to have that add a arguably mid-table or mid-table side like Brighton, it's rare. It's usually you see the lower teams having a massive liability in goal. And that's one of the most secure things Brighton has right now. Which I think a lot of people have maybe overlooked a bit this season. Um, I'll be putting some sort of visuals out soon and looking at um, some numbers around sort of uh, how leaky we've been. I think that's the best word as a defensive side this season. Um, Potter's come in and deserves immense credit for how we transformed this team uh, in terms of attack. Uh, in possessions aside, um, not only are we quite aesthetically pleasing to watch, which I know a lot of fans care about, um, but we're also very efficient, um, or efficient is the wrong word, but very effective actually at creating a lot of the chances. Uh, likewise, the, the more you prioritise attack, the harder it can be to transition into being a good defensive unit. Um, and fans will know from watching most of the season that we've been particularly liable on the counter-attack. Something that we didn't seem to happen a lot to us in the in the past couple of seasons, which was purely because as a side who's sort of more than happy to concede possession, um, you can't be counter-attacked if you're not able to give the ball away by not having it. Um, so it's perhaps a new experience for a lot of people to deal with. And I think Ryan's come under a lot of unfair stick Um He's been criticised for things that weren't always his fault in scenarios that have occurred, perhaps due to um, poor defensive structure um, or trying a defensive structure out, which hasn't quite worked. Uh, of course, these things take time to sort of gel and mold together. And I think that's definitely been something that's a fair sort of analysis of Potter in saying, OK, he needs time. But likewise, he needs time. We need to get enough points to stay in the Premier League again. And we know he's having Potter in who can be this good long term manager if we're not going to be in the division. Um, so he needs to perhaps bleed these things in over a period of time. It might not be the best idea to go in straight away and go, OK, we're going to try all these fancy defensive things that we, we've not done. Um, but I think, therefore, the, the buck shouldn't stop with Ryan. I, I think it's very easy to go, OK, that's the goalkeeper's fault because they're the last person who could have stopped the goal. Well, in reality, if the goalkeeper's dealing with a, a lot of shots, there's a lot of problems that have gone on before that for the goalkeeper to ha have to do their job, um, which sounds strange. But the job of the defence is basically to protect the goalkeeper and protect the goal. Um, and as you say, Ryan has, in that case, even been overperforming. It's not like we're looking at Ryan, who's been a really, really bad goalkeeper and we've been bad defensively. It's a case of, look, we've been bad defensively, but Ryan's actually made it better than what it should be. Um, so a fantastic piece of recruitment. Someone who I know had a pretty good save percentage in Valencia. Um, of course, not in crucially important stat. I know it's one that um, a lot of the pundits are focusing on at the moment in terms of with Kepa at Chelsea um, and Jordan Pickford as well. Um, but as I know you've said on, on sort of pieces that you've done, Aidan, that um, it doesn't tell you enough about a goalkeeper because you could save a lot of shots from range um, and they wouldn't be high quality chances, which wouldn't, wouldn't be a, a high XG chance um, or a high XGC expected goal conceded. Um, and that's why it's perhaps a bit more contextual if you highlight, as you, as you said, with Ryan's numbers. Um, you, you could save 80% of shots, but they could all be from long range. Um, you'd be expected to save to some extent. Um, so I think it's definitely important to highlight Ryan's been really, really good this season. 
we've just been a bit poor defensively um, and people have, have ended up blaming blaming Ryan for it. Um, as much as we mention all of these sort of stats in this data, though, do you still think simplicity is key in terms of football and, and the approach of analytics? I do, yeah, because at the end of the day, using analytics, it can be as pleasing to look at for fans, for readers, for anything like that. But for inside the club, for my job, for example, it's my job is to communicate it to managers, coaches, players. And at the end of the day, these players or staff members, they're not trained in the analytics side. And there is such a thing as being overcomplicated. You have to keep it simple for it to be truly effective for to maximize performance. Um, there's a number of brilliant things that we see on Twitter, and most of the people on Twitter want to get on with a club at some point in their career. I, or at least I imagine that's why they'd be doing it. Maybe they're doing it for just pure enjoyment, but if they're trying to get on with a the club. They have to remember who their initial audience is going to be, and the best advice that I can give to them is advice that I got nearly every day from my mentor at Bristol Rovers. And that was to keep it simple and keep it stupid. I mean, it's what you have to do if you want to truly be effective in the game and you want to maximize your side's performance. And with that being said, that means that you do sometimes have to take a step back and there may be a more complicated metric that shows a really good result or talking point but it's going to be almost impossible to truly communicate it. I think in the future, it will be easier because players and management will be more adjusted and more understanding of the game, uh, or not the game of data. But as of right now, we have to keep things a little bit more simple to truly be effective. I think that's something that Potter does really well is he's obviously a tactical genius. We know that from just everything he's accomplished in his career and just how, I'm trying to think of the right word here, how uh, flexible and fluid he is in his tactical style of play. And he does the great job of, for the most part, his players consistently understand what they're trying to do. And that's a rare quality, and that's why I think Brighton have a great manager that if they can keep the trust in, if they can weather the storm this year of surviving relegation, it will be very good things in the future. Do you think then it's almost a sort of an additional spell of almost that second season syndrome um, that a lot of pundits and fans love to talk about and that, you know, teams can survive in their first year, but sometimes it's once they, as they say, you, you get found out, so to speak, which of course you can tell people won't be the case in, in football people will have an understanding of how your team plays um, long before you finish the season in the Premier League. Um, but perhaps that element of um, of just composure, the fact you feel perhaps safe, uh, I, I know that definitely as a fan in the first season, we sort of went into every game um, without being cliche. You, you did almost treat it like a cup final going, look, we've earned our right to be here, but if we don't perform in 38 games, we won't be here um, for at least another year. Uh, and you do go with that mentality. And over a period of time, um, you do become desensitised to it in the sense that you don't go in saying, look, we need to win all these games. You do start pinpointing. Um, and I think that's that's always something really, really important um, to remember. 
Uh, and based on that, uh, as we've sort of spoken about from sort of a recruitment standpoint, um, that a lot of fans will value the, the sort of the goal scoring attributes um, of players, um, sort of the numbers and, and sort of the visuals of, of goals, um, how good the goal looks, things like that. And flair players are often regarded in, in a lot higher sort of vein um, than, than your creator. So if we, if we take the prime example, um, Ali Rezi Hambash was probably on paper a more attractive signing in terms of footballing flair than someone like Pascal Gross. Um, to, to any analyst or perhaps manager that they might look at Gross's numbers and you know be blown away and go, this is a really good signing. But he's not someone that will get the ball and look to take on players. He he won't look to provide them a flair um, in terms of taking on taking on a man, cutting inside, trying perhaps high risk um, things with the ball. Whereas Johan Basher has got that element of flair about him. Um, but yourself, Aiden, if you were perhaps putting together um, a highlights reel of, of a player, or if you have done in the past, what sort of things would you include? Would you still look to include those sort of goal-scoring um, elements or the, the things that fans might value more? Or from a recruitment standpoint, is it perhaps more tailored to what the manager wants? It's definitely more tailored to what the manager wants. And in addition to that, it's... I mean, every player has a completely different role and their current team and a team that they'll be looking to join. So it comes down to working with a manager, working with a head coach, assistant coach, whoever it may be, and figuring out what exactly they want to see. Because anyone can score goals. Obviously, some are better than others at scoring goals. But a lot of it has come down to what else are they doing, especially in highlight reels. And I'll be the first to say I personally do not like highlight reels one bit. They're, it's obviously something that has importance in the game, but I'd much rather sit back and watch three full matches to figure out what a player's truly doing that may not be appreciated for the most part. And that could be something as simple as pressing actions or getting the head up and finding a key pass. It, it all comes down to what you're looking for in the player and how dynamic a player is. Because the more dynamic a player is, the more likely they'll be able to fit in to your side. So would you say then that versatility can perhaps be a key attribute for a player in terms of their, their coachability, um... And perhaps sometimes what you might see in younger players. I think Steven Alzate is a real prime example of that. Someone that we've sort of poached from Leighton Orient for less than sort of a hundred grand, um, a real cheap signing in this day and age. Um, but someone that's come in and even Graham Potter's openly said, look, he, he's not someone that we know what his best position is, which is a massive positive for him because it means he can play anywhere. But at the same time, for his own personal development, it's also a bit of a negative because that means he's been boxed out by players who are more accomplished, more natural in certain positions. Um, I mean, he's, he's sort of been battling Martin Montoya um, for a period of time at right back, which is no mean feat for someone who has played for like, to Barcelona and into Milan. Um, and he's also looked to sort of push further forward as well. Um, but do you still think that that has a lot to offer a manager if, if they are versatile? Yeah, I think the more that you can do, the more likely a manager is going to be to trust you. As long as you're getting the job done, a manager might look at you and say, okay, you have talent, you're not the best on the team, but because I know you can play five different positions, I'm going to have faith in you, and you're likely going to play a lot of minutes just because I know I can trust you to fill in wherever I need you to be. I think that's definitely spot on. Something that I think um, the likes of James Milner and stuff have sort of really made made their own in terms of being a utility player. 
um, having the value of not necessarily being accomplished uh, in one key position to knock other players out of their spot, but to have the versatility. And I think especially in the Premier League now, when you look at um, the speed of the game, the rate at which players are getting injuries um, and fatigue, you need players who can cover you in more than one position without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, and a final question for you, Adam, really, um, as excellently as it has been to discuss analytics and everything, what do you think are the biggest misperceptions uh, around it currently, especially sort of from fans towards analysts and, and what they're trying to do? I think that a lot of fans have to realize we analysts are not trying to completely make the game based off what our laptop says. There's still a massive human element to it. And I think that's something that can go for all analysts to remember as well. I mean, there are times where I need to step back and remind myself that it's a game played by humans. It's there are many, many circumstances that my numbers will not be able to justify all the time. As long as we remember the human element of the game and we start using data as a complement to how the game's actually played rather than a direction to completely take over the game, I think things will be okay. And I think we'll see a rise in clubs or a continued rise in clubs that are becoming more and more efficient and may not be making the highest profile signings or they may be more conservative in spending, but they're going to have better results because of it. I think that's something then that at the end of the day will definitely get fans on board. If, if you can... Um, do anything to win a game of football you, you're going to get the fans on board regardless of what your style of play chooses to be what your approach is the sort of players your signings um, at the end of the day what everyone has in common that's associated with the football club as you said it, with it being results driven it is wanting to win um, everyone wants that even though everyone has sort of different opinions and different roles um, everyone wants the same thing which I think is the biggest thing to remember at the end of the day is that there is a common goal here people might argue and disagree um, but it, it's ironic because everyone has, has the same goal in mind um, and everyone thinks that they know what the right answer is as well. Um, I, there's a famous quote, I think it's from Sir Alex Ferguson, when he said that he wouldn't tell a, a bricklayer and a plumber how to do their job. But every 3pm on a Saturday, every fan seems to know how to do the manager's job better than the manager. Um, and I think that's just what we need to remember as fans is, look, we see players for up to 90 minutes once a week um, and potentially we see numbers outside of that. Um, or highlights whatever additional stuff we choose to, to give ourselves. Um, but we don't see what the manager sees in terms of the five days of training throughout the week. We don't see the in-depth analysis that they do. We don't see all the um, physiological things that come back from all their sports scientists. Um, and it's very easy for us to sit there and question. But at the, at the end of the day, um, managers don't ever make decisions just by like clicking their fingers. They're, they're definitely very well-reasoned. Um, they have a whole backroom staff. They have a whole team. Um, which is exactly part of your job, Aiden. Um, I'm sure you can tell people that you are an advisor to a manager who is effectively j just a front man now. So uh, as an analyst, sort of yourself is sort of a final question. Um, how well do you sort of feel that y your discussions and your opinions are received by people in, in management? Are some much more open to, to the idea of analysis? A hundred percent. Throughout my career, there's been coaches that I've worked with who are still a bit more conservative or a bit more traditional in the mindset of I've gone this far in my career, why should I listen to you? Um, and at the same time, you have 
coaches who are very open to it and want to use it as another tool to increase their abilities and in turn increase their side's ability um, to perform. And in all the reality, like I can disagree with it as much as I want, but if a coach doesn't, if a coach isn't open to using analytics, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If he's still getting the results, that's fine. Um, so yeah, I think if anyone does get into analytics or if they do become an analyst and they're ever met with someone who kind of conflicts with them or someone who opposes them, don't let it get inside your own head. Don't question your own ability. It's just a mindset. I mean, it comes down to a willingness to add another tool to the ability that a person has in coaching. Absolutely fantastic. Aiden, thank you ever so much for your time. Um, please go and check Aiden out on Twitter. Um, I will link it uh, in, the, in the tweet off the podcast. So please go and check him out. He has a fantastic um, range of data visualizations that he does, uh, a lot of which I shamelessly steal as well. Um, so he helps out with that a lot. But Aiden, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything you'd like to say uh, to the listeners? Uh, no, other than thanks for having me and stay safe, everybody. Yes, most definitely stay safe. Um, and yeah, we'll see you soon. Yeah.